Hello, Michael. What's different with you since you last spoke? Mate, I don't know. I don't know when we last spoke. Um, what's going on with you? Ah, well, it is the actual reopening. Focus is on uh, um, most of the New South Wales and Victoria opening up uh, hospitality again um, mm. at a bit more scale than we thought would be possible. So uh, that is for all of us exciting um, and trepidatious, if that's a word, uh, because we all want it to work so badly, don't we? Um, mm. And uh, uh, and you know, I guess uh, most of the guests that we've had on this show have tended to be from, I guess. Uh, not from airside, but we've got an airside guest today who's Shane Mayer. <laughs> yeah, mate, Shane, um, we, we've, we've known each other for quite a while, actually, um, through the work that I do. Um, and he uh, he operates or works within a company called SSP, Select Service Partners. Um, actually, quite a few Australians have gone through their business on a global um, scale. Uh, and he, they operate um, food and beverage operations within airport environments right across the world. They're a very, very big company. Um, and Shane, um, based out of Thailand, but operates sort of the um, the Southeast Asia region. And I thought, I was speaking to Shane, he, he got back into Australia a couple of weeks ago and had to go into isolation at um, you know hotel and, and we were just chatting and he was talking about sort of the, the, the change that's happened in their business for very obvious reasons. Um, and just what it's like to even be in an airport, I found quite interesting. And, and we'll get him to take us through that as well. But, um, you know, he's got a huge number of sites that he operates in multiple international and domestic airports right across Southeast Asia. So I thought it could be quite interesting to get his take on what's happening now. But, you know, obviously, as we progress out of this, what travel um, and therefore food and beverage within those environments will look like too. Because it'll have flow-on effects for people, obviously, outside of um, airport environments as well. So I just think it'll be quite interesting. Yeah, absolutely. Well, let's, uh, let's get him on. Mate, I thought it'd be a good idea to kick off to just really, I guess, position yourself um, where you are right now, where your comp- what, what your role is, I guess, in your um, in your company as well, and what sort of scale that looks over, because it's um, it's fairly prolific, and um, we will have obviously introduced you in the lead into this conversation, but thought the scale um, you're, you're quite different to any guests that we've had on in terms of the um, geographical scale um, or region that you look you look after. Um, yeah, yeah, sure. Number of different brands and then the, I guess the uh, prevalence of, of operations within airports, which is obviously a pretty um, interesting space at the moment and, and, and the conversation you and I had a couple of weeks ago was really interesting. So yeah. I guess that's a really, really big question. But um, why don't you start with just explaining your current role, what you look after, um, and, and all the bits and pieces of a, of, of a week in your life at the moment. Yeah, absolutely. Well, um, where do I start? Um, first of all, thanks for the uh, invite. Um, it's, it's a privilege to do these kind of things and at least share um, some of the daily, I suppose, you know, the, the challenges that um, I face in my role, the market and so on. So it'd be good to kind of give some kind of um, clarity on what that looks like. But my role uh, currently is the managing director for Southeast Asia for a company called SSP, which is, stands for Select Service Partners. And essentially, we are a specialist in what we call travel and retail. So um, if you go to an airport and you, you know, order something from one of the restaurants there, good chances that we're one of those restaurants. 
uh, in Europe um, and the US, we mainly also do things like rail. Um, we do motorways in, say, Germany, um, essentially anywhere where there's mass kind of transit. We don't we don't really delve into kind of the sporting stadium kind of things and the high street. Um, we do have a couple of examples of that globally, but that's probably the you know half of one percent of what we dealt with. It's mainly airlines is what we specialise in. So ironically, um, probably the two worst um, uh, types of businesses you could be associated or industries you could be associated with now are hospitality and travel, of which we do both. So it's well, that irony, believe me, that irony is not lost on me. But um, And we do both in a large scale. So uh, it's it's quite an amusing fact when you when you think about that. Um, my portfolio, I'm based in Thailand. I run a joint venture for the board of Minor International based in Thailand and SSP Asia Pacific, um, and I run a joint venture in Thailand. Uh, I also oversee Singapore, Malaysia, and Australia. So it's around about 160 give or take restaurants and quite uh, growing quite um, aggressively pre-COVID. That was obviously things are all different now. Um, with the role, essentially, I look after around about 50 to 55 different individual brands. So it's quite complex. So in Australia, for instance, I've got around 23 individual brands um, that I look after. Um, and so you're dealing with franchisees, uh, sorry, franchisors, you're dealing with our own corporate structures. We're dealing with Australian franchise brands. We're dealing with international franchise brands and all different complexities. Some of the agreements come under our global agreement where I have one brand in a number of countries. Some are just tailored towards the individual country itself. So there's a whole lot of complexity that goes in that and you're forever dealing with franchisors under different scenarios. You're dealing with completely differing operational complexities from a sushi restaurant to a Starbucks cafe to a Carl's Jr. burger. It's a different hat you wear every day you go to work, depending on um, what you're looking at that day. So it's quite a complex role. Um, and the four regions, I've got uh, just under around 2,000 staff in total, um, and I've got an executive team in each country. Um, and interesting at the moment, obviously, because everything's remote, so we're setting up you know, regular calls, uh, regular meetings to talk about progress, what we're working on, uh, but essentially I've got a, you know, a, a good, strong governance structure in each, each, uh, each country. So that's kind of fundamentally what I do, but it's a very broad role. I deal with, uh, I don't do so much as what I used to do by getting in and making a coffee or flipping a burger. Those days are probably gone, but um, <laughs> I now deal with a lot more with budgets and, and corporates other corporates, um, government interactions, um, obviously board level, all sorts of sort of things. But when I do get the opportunity to get back into a restaurant, whether it's to clean the table, whether it's say you know make a sandwich, whatever, it, it's what I love. Um, sometimes I get kicked out by the staff because I'm too slow, but uh, uh, they, you know my, uh, my my good old days are kind of gone past me now. I'm a bit slower than what I used to be, but um, I still like to get involved. So yeah, that kind of in a nutshell. What was, uh, what, I do is, what was your first foray into uh, hospitality? Yeah, so my, most uh, like most Aussie kids, I started at McDonald's in Melbourne. Fantry Gully McDonald's was the first store that I started at. Um, that's the, that seems like a world away now. Uh, flipping burgers, never wanted to work as a career. Always wanted to be an electrician. That was my goal. 
uh, worked at McDonald's, um, got an apprenticeship as an electrician, and then got made redundant in 1990 when the recession that we had to have hit. So that kind of parked that pretty quickly after 12 months. Uh, went back to McDonald's full time to try to figure out what I was going to do, and then the rest is history from there. Kind of took off. So yeah, I um, McDonald's was my first sort of foray into into food. Um, moved over to Canada when I was 19 for McDonald's for two years. That was my first experience working overseas as sort of a backpacker kind of, but did it slightly differently and had jobs lined up before I went overseas rather than the other way. Um, and then, yeah, came back over from Canada and then sort of worked into higher management in McDonald's and then kind of went from there. So that was – McDonald's was – I probably spent a good 15 years in total with McDonald's in one shape or another, but there's still components now to this day that I never forget habits have put me into, practices have put me into. Uh, yeah, it was. it's something that will sort of never leave me. We should, so, so I've got that to, got that to think. Mm. We should actually do a, a podcast on that, Mike, one day. The number of yeah, people who have been influenced by that brand. Is really yeah, I was going to say because when I was at university myself uh, and looking at career options, I don't know, you'd know better, Shane, but McDonald's had that uh, finishing school almost, you know, it's like McKinsey, McDonald's, like there's – yeah, but, yeah. Which um, you know, it's uh, I I've sort of forgotten about um, but I guess thinking about that experience uh, from flipping burgers into fifteen years of McDonald's and then you you know discussion now about the complexity of your business and I've got to be honest, my brain is going to struggle to follow some of this. I think it is the scale of what you're describing um, is, and it's not an area I'm overly familiar with uh, as from a business side, obviously as. An occasional traveller, even more occasionally these days. Uh, you know, it's um, it's I've never understood exactly how it all works, and I guess uh, some of the guests that we normally have on um, have more localised business. Luke, Luke, you would agree, and you know, so it's it. But this particularly Melbourne comes to mind because brands like Saint Ali and Stomping Ground, uh, which are, I guess, local, strong local brands, being used, not used, but you're seeing, we were seeing their entry into Melbourne Airport. Um, yes. And I guess I can see the destination marketing aspect from a tourism perspective, and you know. But um, uh, were they involved in your? Are they? Did you have sort of oversight of that? Those types of businesses, or? Yeah. So the the airport, without going kind of going to to chapter and verse, the airport business is essentially a tender driven business. So sites come up for availability in a particular airport. Um, we would then normally go and have an extensive conversation with the airport over probably 12 to 18 months before we ever know the tents coming out just to get a sense of where the head's at. Um, we can even see sometimes kind of guide them on how they should structure the layout and the format and where they're going to build the restaurants and what kind of scope it should look like based off our experience. Um, that doesn't always necessarily come to fruition, but we kind of give them some insight. Um, and then we kind of start to read where we think they're heading and what kind of not necessarily brands but maybe if it's coffee or if they like burgers and then we actually go and hit the ground and start working with some of these local companies and show them who we are partner with who we are build up um, sort of the relationship with them um, and then do a deal even though we don't know yet what the airport's going to want um, and then the airport comes out for a tender and then we're better positioned now sometimes we do all this work and they come out and they say they want Chinese and we haven't done that so we're left scrambling and and, and those things are probably few and far between because we think we you know, we do a pretty good job in doing our homework. So in Melbourne, for instance, obviously we put forward a number of brands. We didn't win those locations. Competitors won the 
Sonali's and those sort of things. But because we had built a relationship with Melbourne Airport for two years before we even entered the airport, um, even though we didn't win those sites, they actually came knocking on our door and said, well, we'd really love to get rolled into Melbourne Airport. Um, we've got, we're Rolls, you know, largest, one of our, their largest uh, franchise partners. So we have the relationships already. So we're able to do a deal, which as subsequently you've seen now, we've got two Rolls stores in Melbourne. Um, and that's kind of how we work. So sometimes it's luck. Sometimes it's, it's just, you know, pounding the pavements, doing the hard work for two years with no, nothing in mind. Um, and we do that a lot. And that's what we specialize in. And if that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It'd be, I thought um good place to start. Are you able to maybe take your mind back three months ago, um, if that's the relevant um, time period, and, and kind of define what your business looked like then and then describe what it looks like now just to give us a real understanding of, of yeah. the impact that you've seen? Yeah, really good question. I'd probably go back further than that if that's okay. Um, because, you know, we're uh, – so our regional office is in Hong Kong. Um, we've got a large presence in Hong Kong, China, obviously Singapore, Thailand. We started seeing signs of this in our China locations in December um, and we started seeing rumblings internally through our team about what was, what was potentially happening. Um, we took, we basically stood up and took notice of, of that, having, you know, the company's gone through SARS and those sort of things before, so we probably paid a lot more attention to it. Um, I was on holidays in Australia in early January. We had some cases in Thailand. I cut my holiday short, went back to Thailand um, because we just started to think this is probably going to get ugly. Um, so we started to gear up for it. So from early January, we were starting to prepare for it. Um, it hit hard in Thailand late January because of the Chinese New Year around the 24th of January is when we really saw it hit hard. So we were running a double-digit growth um, on prior year in Thailand up until the 23rd of January and we finished in low single digit with the last week to go. That's how bad it went off a cliff in the last week. So, and then from the 1st of February, all of a sudden, you know, we're 30, 40, 50% down in Thailand alone and it just went off a cliff. Um, that enabled us to kind of then start to prep the um, Australian business because it wasn't yet massive in Australia, although the Prime Minister had obviously stopped Chinese coming and that sort of thing. But because we'd seen through these patterns in the other countries, we were better prepared for Australia. Um, and then we reacted quicker than most um, because we had that, I suppose, we'd gone through that pain. The business um, in sort of November, December in Australia was very strong. We just acquired a competitor that we'd been working the deal on for quite some time. That went live in December and the other part of it went live in January in Perth. So things were looking up and up. We doubled our volume in Australia. Um, with those acquisitions, uh, we were looking really, really strong. And then this happened. And kind of to paint the picture, as I said earlier, I've got around about 160 restaurants that I run throughout Asia. I've now got three open out of the 160. So I'm now running at 1% of my turnover of last year. <laughs> I've dropped 99% of my business, which is uh, you think about those numbers and they're mind-blowing and that, you know, we've been that way for quite some time, but it essentially went from 100% down to, you know, 30% drop, 50% drop, 70% drop in the space of probably four to five weeks. It was quick. Mm. And we were essentially, were holding off in Thailand for quite some time. I only shut all the rest of my stores in Thailand probably early April. Yeah, right. We still had some traffic. So, yeah, the, the magnitude was just 
phenomenal of this scale. And then globally, you know, the, the numbers are pretty similar for us globally. The, uh, it's starting to rebound now and other countries are starting to open up some sites. But, yeah, the, the numbers have been phenomenal with the drop and how fast it's been. And it just has left people with no time to react. I've got to ask because I think a lot of people will be wondering, which are your three stores that are open still? Where are they? <laughs> Not what you'd expect, actually. It's a, One's called Macaneta, which is a small cafe in Brisbane in Terminal, oh, sorry, in, uh, in Melbourne Airport in Terminal 3 in Virgin. Um, if you've ever been to Melbourne and you're walking down the steps, the big red teacup or teapot kind of, that's, that's the one that's open. Uh, it's limited hours Monday to Friday. Um, the other one is Hobart Airport. Again, the airside once you go through security, small cafe. And then similar brand, Macaneta in Perth in Terminal 1, which is the Virgin Terminal. Um, they're the only three I have open in all of a, in, in my stores in, in Asia. We've got some stores open in China that have stayed open during this time, Taiwan. Um, but, yeah, they're my three, probably the smallest three stores that I have in my portfolio, and they're the ones that are still standing. So it's... Uh, and that's more of a sort of providing a service to the airport staff more than anything, to be honest. You know, they're, they're not a, uh, it's, it's not a profitable exercise. It's just more providing a service to the airport staff. Uh, and they're kind of the ones we chose to keep open. Come fly with me, let's fly, let's fly away. If you can use some exotic booze, there's a bar in far Bombay. Fly with me, and so, fly, I guess, what has the reaction been? Like, in, so, I guess, for context, uh, both Luke and I, in the Australian hospitality scene, have you know, obviously seen not it's not been as bad as that, but you know, sort of revenue declines of ninety five percent, and and now it's on the cusp of reopening. You know, so people have kind of tried to bridge the gap from closure through to uh, reopening, and there's a moratorium on bankruptcy and these sorts of things, government assistance to get businesses through. Um, but even then there'll be a rate of insolvency. But how does that translate to your business? Um, because from the discussion here, which is the, uh, the time it will take us to get back on the plane on mass is, is going to be some time away, at least internationally. Um, so is there, a, can you talk us through that? Yeah, Mark, it's, it's a really good question. Uh, there's, uh, how do I answer this? There's a number of different conclusions we're quickly coming to, and it's based off government interaction. So if I pick Australia, um, as we all no doubt know, there's JobKeeper, there's JobSeeker, there's, there's a number. It doesn't necessarily tick all the boxes and cover everyone, but with what I've seen, I actually think it's a it's a very good assistance to employees and people, employees like myself. It's made a significant difference to decide to keep those people on the books um, completely transfer across the payment. Um, we've even decided to go one step further and we're actually um, paying most of the staff, we're paying 50%. So we're giving them JobKeeper, but we're also topping up the salary as well as sort of a, I suppose, a, a loyalty thing. And it's something we're really big on is um, from a, a corporate responsibility point of view is to do the right thing by the employees. I'd absolutely love to pay them 100%, but nobody's in that position. But we kind of came to a number where we thought 50%. And for that, we generally ask them to work one day a week, two days a week at the most. Um, and the staff have been generally receptive to that and really happy with that. Um, the response, I think, what we're seeing in Australia is, and, and a lot of hospitality workers, will, you know, companies will talk about this. 
we're in this dormant window for the next three months and everybody's kind of drifting along and the date everyone's really working towards is what happens from the 1st of October. I think that's what everyone's working towards. And that's why I made the decision to open up some of the restaurants now because with reduced rents that we've negotiated with the airports and the airports, you know, the majority of the airports have been very cooperative, see the long-term partnership aspect and really want to work with us, particularly Melbourne Airport, they've been phenomenal um, in working with us and having that true vision. Um, and that's enabled me to make the decision to open sooner. What makes me nervous, though, is nobody's really discussed rents with airports, for instance, from post-September. Uh, nobody knows what's going to happen once JobKeeper goes. Um, the demands of travel are going to change um, significantly, be it medical reasons and also financial companies are doing it harder. They'll reevaluate uh, their travel needs. Um, if this is sort of any proof, people now can can communicate very differently to what they used to six months ago. The old um, way of jumping on a plane, going to Sydney for a meeting, probably companies will rethink that. Um, that's going to affect companies like me that rely on that corporate traveller to go past my restaurant to, to buy a croissant, to buy a coffee. Um, so that's going to change. Now, eventually, our prediction will be people are creatures of habit and whether it's one, two, three years, people will go back to the way they were. But for the next 12 to 18 months, the next three months in Australia, it'll be wait and see. Um, in Thailand, for instance, we don't have the same government assistance. So if I open tomorrow, I pay the staff 100% of the wage. Now, granted, the, the rates are much cheaper than Australia, but I have that risk. Um, Singapore is, again, the government's been um, also very good and very generous in providing a subsidy, but that will come a day where that will stop. So the next three months, there's a lot of this wait and see, not sure what's going to happen. Nobody wants to commit to agreements, to renegotiating rents now. Um, everyone's just in this kind of a state of flux. Uh, it's just a limbo for up until September, and we're all feeling that if that makes sense, um, particularly in the, in the airport space. Um, it's a bit of a strange time yet. It's a, we, you know, the Prime Minister even spoke about hibernation, but um, hibernation implies you're kind of getting fat ready to go once you come out of hibernation. But everyone now is sitting here going, well, what's going to happen? And we yeah. don't quite know that yet and nobody really wants to do any kind of deals yet or renegotiate leases because nobody knows what the future is going to look like. Yeah, it's more a zombie-like effect at the moment, isn't it? Yeah, that's that's probably a good example. That's um, everyone's just drifting along, waiting for somebody to make a decision on something. I mean, like I don't know if this is interesting, but um, to you or not, but the last uh, 24, 48 hours, uh, um, we've been so I chair an industry body called the Nighttime Industries Association, which I bore listeners with all the time uh, in hopes of uh, building <laughs> continuing alignment, basically, but. <laughs> It's relevant to this because we are, uh, we've got reopening happening in different states uh, currently. So from 1 June, Victoria, um, New South Wales is already opened, but uh, its numbers are going to go up and so forth. And uh, the, we've been working on reopening guidelines for businesses that are what we're calling principles driven. So they're not prescriptive. Um, they sort of take the understanding about trading through physical distancing, but understand that every business is different. And um, I guess the we we won't be the only group of stakeholders asking the government to extend JobKeeper. And yeah, uh, what, of we're, what we're trying to do is, um, and and this is one of these things. There's so many people in need, so you can understand uh, decision making process. But is to try and highly link the argument to um, tourism, but in particular the tourism bubble that the government's talking about. So I'm interested in your thoughts on that because we are uh, are. Working on a strategy to play 
the Eastern Seaboard of Australia should align all of its hospitality trading terms to New Zealand's because New Zealand's slightly ahead of the curve. Consumers, it means they know what they're going to get in terms of that experience, like what, what the rules are, if they're consistent across all the states, um, then the, you're removing one more one more barrier to getting back on a plane or moving, you know, between between territories if the government government allows it. Uh, and in terms of it being a just a, a way of connecting the hospitality, the localised hospitality argument to the major objective of the government to uh, tourism kick off again, um, I guess that's part, partly our thinking. But do you have sort of any faith in that tourism bubble strategy or is that sort of high on the radar or... I, yeah, I do. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a good question uh, and it's sort of thought-provoking. I uh, Look, and, and again, I'm not the expert on this, but we, we see enough to know that we think that not just, I won't just single out Australia, but markets with a domestic capacity will bounce back far sooner than markets without. So if you look at Hong Kong's, Singapore's and those sort of things, we generally think they'll be much slower than, say, in Australia or um uh, even the US to a certain degree, but they're kind of, um, again, they started this later than everyone else and theirs will drag on further. But um, Europe and those sort of things where there's a domestic capacity because you can have that bubble. Um, you know, in Thailand, I think, you know, we, we've got talks that the domestic capacity will start from next week. Um, the airlines are even booking, uh, now booking flights and, and setting out schedules and that sort of thing. So there'll be a bubble within, but yet, Thailand overall doesn't hasn't opened up its borders and probably won't like Australia for some time. So we think that there will be a number of bubbles, um, whatever that looks like. In some schemes, there's talk of um, bubbles between Singapore and China only. Um, we we sort of took the approach that in Australia we see domestic will start from around about July, and we don't think international, um, being all serious, um, will start from probably February, March next year, excluding like the New Zealand capacity and that sort of thing. Um, because ultimately Australia can control what happens in its country, but it can't control what comes inside. And then you've got the, the question that everyone's asking, well, if they open up the borders, do I still need to do the 14-day quarantine? Because that will negate anybody wanting to come to Australia if they have to be forced to quarantine. Um, and until they can get around that, they won't open the borders. Uh, it just won't make sense. Um, having experienced that personally myself, um, I don't wish that on, on anyone. Um, it's uh, it was an interesting experience, one I'd prefer not to repeat. But um, yeah, it's but yeah, we live in a in a lucky country, and we're fortunate the government will actually pay for that. And um, as an aside, so, on the day before they, uh, I think it was thirty the fourteenth of March, we actually did a company away day at the quarantine station in. <laughs> In Manly, and wow, it was. I mean, if, if you need to be in quarantine, shout out to those guys. I just it is custom designed for the situation, a little bit better than it was, you know, when it was used, uh, um, for its original purposes. But, um, yeah, yeah, look, uh, staying two weeks at the South Hotel, looking at overlooking a diving harbor on the 25th floor, I probably can't complain too much. <laughs> so, <laughs> it's uh, it could have been worse. <laughs> uh, when, I, when I came back, I uh, opened up my bedroom door and there was no food here. Uh, waiting for me, and I kind of realised that I have to cook it myself. So <laughs> it's um, yeah, I kind of got used to that. At a certain time, opening up the door, the food sitting there waiting. I could I could get used to that. But no, it's um. So yeah, look from a travel bubble. Back to your question, from a travel bubble point of view, um, we again we don't have any government insight. It's just kind of what we uh, anticipate is going to happen. 
Um, we talk to the airports a lot. We talk to, you know, a number of different bodies. Um, but ultimately, what the government decide is what they'll decide. Um, but, yeah, we kind of think that um, that will happen and it may happen in other markets. So, obviously, Queensland right now isn't open. I think the Premier is probably the only one that knows when that's going to happen. But um, in New South Wales and Victoria and so on, in South Australia, when they open, there may be bubbles there. Um, so, I think it, it obviously we would like all of it open. Um, the sooner we can get running, the better. But, um, yeah, well, obviously we can't really control uh, what happens there. But what I can control is to make sure we're ready for it when that does happen so we're not then having to wait and scramble after we get notified. So that's probably what we're working on in the background is to make sure we are ready for it when it yeah. does happen. And I think that that's a really good point to get to. What does that preparation look like? What are you expecting to... Um how are you expecting to behave or what practices are you expecting to have to change um, operationally uh, at, at all levels, yeah. I guess, um, when you do get the opportunity to kind of reopen to a significant level? Yeah, look, it's a really interesting topic. There's things that we can control and there's things that we know will be completely out of our control. So I suppose I'd preface it to say if you think back to 9-11, um, who would have thought before 9-11 that you would not be allowed to take more than 100 ml liquids onto a flight? You'd have to go through this extensive screening process. Um, you would have thought people were mad. Now it's just become the accepted norm. I think there's going to be, uh, and again, we're not privy to this, but I believe there's going to be new norms in the next 6 to 12 months going forward that you know a year ago we would have thought was crazy. Um, it's just the way it's going to be done. It might even involve having to turn up for a domestic flight two hours before the flight, three hours before international, because you may have to go through an extensive screening process. You may have to get checked for COVID. You know, Emirates are doing it before you get on a flight, um, and they may, may not even let you on a flight without it. Um, I don't think we know yet even what it's going to look like. I think they're still working through that. So I think the, the good old days of just turning up to a domestic flight half an hour before going through, you know, not even having to check in at the counter if you, if you say platinum with Qantas or Virgin, just going straight through to the plane. I think those days are gone um, and I think it will change um, and we don't know yet what it's going to look like. I think the customer journey uh, will look very different in six to 12 months' time to what it used to look like. Um, hopefully I'm wrong and it goes back to the way it was, but in honesty, I just can't see it happening. I think safety measures, um, legalities, they'll force uh, – airlines will be forced to take extreme measures – even to the point where, you know, you may not even have middle seats. You know, I flew back um, on from Sydney to Brisbane last week when I came back from quarantine and all the middle seats were blocked out on the Virgin plane um, and they only had the window and the aisle seats available. So I think now, I don't know whether that is sustainable long-term, mm. but it may be the new norm. And if that's the case, then I think we'll start seeing some impact on pricing, some significant impact, particularly overseas. Yeah. And do you... Do you I gotta go back. I mean, a lot of the changes because everyone's thinking is moving pretty quickly as you make plans based on the information that you have. And and your 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 reference to the hundred mils of liquid that's something that stayed with us. But you'd have to think once there's either a vaccine or say the the coronavirus is is eradicated as a threat, um, there's an opportunity to drop away the procedures or practices that have been put yeah. in place because that's no longer a, a, a real threat. So there's a there's a yeah. huge opportunity for yeah. businesses like yours or even just airports in general, airlines as well, to invest a lot of money into readying themselves for a period that may only last 12 months. 
um, potentially, you know, until a vaccine is actually in and out and um, is, is created and out to general public, you know, which, which there's a lot of businesses here, if you look at it, hospitality outside of airports that have scrambled to keep up based on the information that they have and probably invested into things that they didn't yeah. actually get to realise their investment on because things have moved so quickly. So, I mean, that's, that's probably yeah. an element yeah, of consideration absolutely. in your world, I'd suggest. Yeah, and, and to sort of from a vaccine point of view, you know, hopefully whenever, whenever that is. Um, the problem that I see with that, though, is that in 12 months' time it could be a different virus and there's no vaccine, or in 18 months' time it's a different virus again. What this has taught us is thinking has to change, particularly in travel, and we've probably been you know, complacent in certain areas. Um, from a customer journey point of view, this could be a new norm in that they might have solved the COVID problem in 12 months' time, but then in three years' time, there's a completely different virus. What this has shown compared to SARS is now, if you look at China travel, there's China now has six times greater travel in and out of China than in 2002 and three when SARS hit. Now, you think about the number for a moment, that's mind-boggling. Greater capacity. There was 4 million people that left Wuhan, um, even though they potentially, a lot of them were quite infected when they locked down Wuhan. All those people spread to other countries. That's what started this problem in the first place. So... Um, and particularly with, as we all know, with the you know asymptomatic travellers, um, how quickly this is spread without people realising. And, and majority of, I think it's fair to say, majority of impact in Australia has caused, been caused by international travellers, whether it be tourists, whether it be um, citizens like myself returning home. Um, that's where it's spread. So I, I think we have to look at what is the new norm going to look like. Um, the difference between this and, say, 9-11 was with 9-11, you kind of had government interaction. You know, they told us what we had to do, what we couldn't do. Um, with this, everybody's trying to figure it out because no one knows. You know, with terrorism, we kind of pretty quickly figured out with 9-11 what happened. Um, with this, no one really knows. No one, you know, everyone's still learning about it, you know, three months later. Um, it's become the new norm. So Pete, we're still trying to find our feet as to, well, what can we do? What can't we do? Social distancing, is it 1.5 metres? Is it... Um, everybody's still fumbling the way through it and they're doing a great job with what we have to work with. But um, that's our challenge now. What we've been working on behind the scenes is when we do reopen, what does that look like from a social distancing? So, for instance, we opened the Macaneta store in Melbourne without cash and we decided to do card. Now, we've never done that. Um, but we had signage up. It's become the new norm and it's been perfectly fine. Nobody's had an issue with it. Everybody accepts it. So we now go away thinking, well, do we get rid of cash out of our business and just use cards in the future? I know people are going to accept that. So it's raising a whole lot of questions now we're starting to look at. Um, I'll give an example. We opened a brand-new concept in Brisbane um, in the Qantas terminal in November. We put self-ordering kiosk, which was the first of its kind in Australia, where you could essentially order from any of our restaurants on the one kiosk um, rather than like a McDonald's where it's the one restaurant on the one kiosk. You could order from five restaurants. Now... What we're seeing in Asia at the moment now is there's a significant aversion to using software in chaos because you have to touch the screen. So now we're going away going, well, do we have to scrap that now and go to a different type of technology? Maybe it's on your phone. Maybe it's on. Um, so that investment was November and it's potentially now redundant because we're going to have to rethink the way we do things. Um, this is going to change the landscape um, significantly in ways we're still trying to get ahead around, um, particularly in the travel space. Um, and we've invested a lot of money in technology, um, particularly software and kiosks. I've put a number of kiosks into my Burger King stores in Thailand. Um, we've put them into Singapore. 
we're now going to have to go back and look at that and say, well, is that not going to be valid anymore and do we have to look at ways where people can order ahead on their mobile phone because it's the one device people trust because they have it on them all the time. So do we have to completely change the way we, we do things? Other things like a, you know, the, the key essence in airports is about speed. So there's an, what we call a number of, of pain points. So from a customer journey, they're generally their first stressor is car parking. They've got to find a car park and they drive around for 20 minutes and that gets annoyed. Then they find a car park, they, they go, right, now we've got to check in. Then there's a big line. That's stressor number two. Um, then they get through that. Then they've got to get through security, stressor number three. Get through customs, whether they're domestic or not. Then generally they're, where's my gate? Got to find my gate. Once they've found the gate, now it's a, right, now I can eat. Um, corporate travels are obviously different because they get the customer journey, they understand it. But you add all that in and then someone comes to an airport and they say, oh, geez, that was really expensive or I had a bad experience or whatever it was. Because they've gone through all those other stresses, it just triggers that last touch point, which is who we are. Um, and, and, you know, it's, yeah, and absolutely sometimes prices are high. Um, there's a lot of reasons why, which I won't go into, but um, it's a, we've got to look at how do we make that journey. So from a speed point of view, we were really working towards grab and go. You could grab a sandwich out of a fridge yourself, pay for it. Now we're looking at it going, feedback we're getting is, we're probably going to have to change that because customers don't now want to necessarily touch a wrapped sandwich in a fridge because who else has touched that? Can I trust that? So we have to now rethink the entire customer journey and that's kind of what we've been working on behind the scenes. Yeah. So what we kind of thought we'd settled on six months ago is completely gone out the window. We start again. And now we have to rethink the customer journey, design it. It's a it's an interesting problem to solve, but it's, you know, and there's no right answers to be honest. I want to ask two questions relative to what you just said. I'm going to ask them at the same time so I don't forget them. Um, sure. Is that rethinking of, um, uh, I guess, your processes or just changing the previous thinking that you had in relation to what's going on, um, are, you think, are you having to shift that the same way across all of the different markets that you're working in um, or are they different problems in different markets? And there's been a lot of chat here around um, the hospitality sector and the fact that there needed to be a bit of a shake-up. And feel free not to answer this because you, you kind of just stepped away from it a second ago. But high rents, high costs of operating, delivering low returns has been a topic worldwide, I think, in hospitality as a result of this, particularly in restaurants. Um, my understanding, and I'm not an expert on it at all, is that um, airports are probably pretty similar kind of microcosms in, in, in a lot of respects. The rents are very, very high. Um, it's hard to do business because you've got to get all of your projects in through security and there's just complexities to it. Um, I'm not saying it's a broken model like a lot of people are saying that the sort of non-airport restaurants is a broken model but um, what is your perspective on that? Do you think this might bring about a bit of a shift in way leases are negotiated perhaps the pricing on leases and, and rental space yeah. within airports um, given that there's going to be less people around and less opportunity to make money? Yeah, there's sort of the, I suppose, the industry joke that, you know, airports are Westfield with a runway on it. But um, yeah, essentially, um, it's the same kind of thing. You, you see the same circle, people work in the same circles. Um, rents have always been a sort of bone of contention, but at the end of the day, we choose to be there. We can choose not to be there. Um, we don't have to pay the rent and we don't have to be there. So I don't necessarily buy into, oh, woe is me, we're paying high rents because that's our choice. Um, 
how we negotiate with the airport, the, the relationships we have with the airport, um, a lot of that is integral and building up the trust. And, and we're a mass consolidator. So um, I'll give an example of the Brisbane site. We opened five restaurants in the one day, in the one location. Um, the complexity in designing menus, designing the locations, we probably, our team spent probably eight months designing it. Um, we spent another three months building it. Uh, and in that time frame, we had to develop, um, you know, around about two and a half thousand menu items. Um, so it's highly complex business and there's not many people that can do it. And even when you look at the Sonalis and those kind of brands, they don't come in and do it on their own. They partner with someone like us because it's just too complex to work. As you indicated, security, everything else, knowing how the airport works, you cannot do it. And the airports know that. Um, sometimes they venture out and they'll get a downtown operator. Um, you know, sometimes that works, sometimes it doesn't. More than likely it doesn't, which is why they work with companies like us. And, and even from a, companies like us, from purely from a covenants point of view, you know, we have the capacity to pay the rents if things go bad and that sort of thing. Um, so there's a bit of give and take there. And, and there's sometimes, you know, you always, I suppose a, a good deal is when both sides walk away thinking they didn't get the best out of it. Um, but, you know, it's always a case of there's some give and take that needs to be had. Um, and ultimately, you know, if we didn't make money, we wouldn't be here. Now, there's some contracts we lose money on. There's some we make good money on. Um, it's how we operate it. We It's a razor-thin sort of margins because rents are high. Obviously, in Australia, labour's high, as everybody knows. Um, and you take all that into account. Um, we're generally paying you know, a considerable percentage higher in rent than we would elsewhere. Um, but going in answer to your question going forward, as I said, we're kind of in this limbo stage. Now I've been talking to the head of commercial for one of the major airports yesterday, just kind of having a broad discussion about what is not not about what rent are we going to pay, but just what's the time frame look like. Um, and at the moment, they're kind of waiting and seeing what it's going to look like over the next few months. So um, I think it will change. I think there'll be two facets. There'll be the short term, what does the rent look like for the balance of the year? And then there'll be come Jan 1, what does it look like on any remaining contracts we have? Um, do we have to renegotiate it from scratch? Do we go to a nominated percentage? Um, they're the things we're going to have to work through. And that's not just in Australia, that's globally. We're having the same conversation in Thailand. Um, we're about to have the same conversation in Singapore because from the 1st of June, they're reopening. So they want to talk to us about, you know, when you're going to look at opening your stores again. And we're saying, well, what does passenger numbers look like? So there's going to be a lot of that give and take um, backwards and forwards. And it's, the rent discussion is really, it's not going to be resolved in the next month. It'll be probably the next six to 12 months we'll still be talking about it. I, I just, uh, unless I'm mistaken, I don't see any quick solution for this going forward. It's just not going to be. Um, if I look at Australia, it's got 48 locations. I've got 48 individual contracts. And even though, say, Sydney, I've got 10, Brisbane, I've got um, nine, sorry, 10, um, but they're all individual contracts. So... Every contract has to be negotiated separately. And just the complexity in that, um, you know, it's, it's pretty time-consuming. Um, the by and large, the contracts have the same fundamental principles, but the commercial terms are all different from contract to contract. Um, so that's kind of going to be the challenge um, for us particularly because of the airport space. And a lot of ours are tax-driven, what we call tax-driven or passenger-driven um, demand. So a lot of our numbers and the calculations are based off that. Um, down, downtown High Street, they have no guarantee of who's going to come in um, tomorrow. Um, shopping centres, probably a little bit more different um, because there are some, they can have some benchmark numbers of who's coming in, but 
for us, it's all PAX-driven. Um, and that's why we pay high rents because airports basically say we're a captive market. You know, we're going to get you know, X amount of million people in there this year. And so we base our numbers off that. But right now, all bets are off because nobody knows what that's going to look like. Um, you know, it's essentially, you look at Sydney Airport, it does around 44 million passengers a year. Um, and it's essentially dropped by about 97%. So, um, and then there's still all the same retailers there. So even if I decide to open my restaurants tomorrow, it's, it's, I suppose it's like economic game theory. I'm trying to figure out, well, who else is going to open that's going to cannibalise my potential sales? How many passengers am I getting? And then the other complexity, which we haven't spoken about, is Virgin. Nobody knows what's going to happen with Virgin for the next, if they're going to come back. Um, you know, if they do come back, will it be in the next three, six months? What's that going to look like? You know, I've got a considerable amount of my assets in the Virgin terminals. So what does that look like? And yet I'm expected to try to negotiate rent now and I don't even know if one of the major carriers is even going to come back. So it's, yeah, it's, so they're the kind of, compl- and, and look, the airports have been good. The airports understand that. They know that that's out of our control, their control. Um, you know, they're the same as us. Um, so there's kind of been, degree of flexibility you know they're kind of helping us through these next couple of months and then it's a wait and see game but there's no real serious discussions on rents at the moment because no one wants to really go down that road yet until they have clarity So it's kind of a, uh, hopefully it answers your question, but it's a bit of a complex, um, you know, topic and subject at the moment um, because there's just so many moving parts. Do you, like, I've got one question which is related and based on ignorant, but do you look at, I'm thinking about, you know, the, the, more the railway stations of um, Europe and um, more so than Australia, um, but do you look at that market and for insights, uh, is it comparable um, at all? Uh, and because I guess at some level there's a couple of less barriers going through those stress points that you were talking about um, for a customer airport customer journey. Uh, and I'm, I'm not a what rail travel is doing in Europe, but I like you know there's a is is there any learnings coming out of that? Yeah, yeah and as you look at the UK, the rail market's slightly different because the the UK geographically is obviously nowhere near the size of Australia. So to go by rail is a lot more um, common. Um, they're in regional and those sort of towns, but then you look at places like Euston Station in the UK, in London and those sort of ones. Now, those stations will do double the amount of traffic that a major airport in Australia will do, and that's one railway station. So the sheer volume um, and from a social distancing point of view, you know, they're things they're going to have to get their heads around. How does that work now? How do restaurants work around that? Um, we see that domestic rail will be a lot more common in the UK, for instance, first before anything else um, because it's domestic rail and obviously people can train, you know, get a train somewhere but they don't necessarily need to get on a plane somewhere. Um, so we see that will be potentially bouncing back. Now, there's no rhyme or reason why that will or won't, that won't. It's just what we think um, will happen based off our internal logic. Um, time will tell whether that's right or wrong. The same as we think domestic travel will bounce back in Australia before other markets in Asia, so to speak, um, with the exception of maybe Thailand, simply because... Australia is such a, a wide, you know, geographical market. People do travel a lot more from city to city and it's a lot more common. You look at the Melbourne-Sydney route, I think it's the yeah. third or the fourth busiest route globally. So 
um, there's obviously a need there. The, the question will be um, what's going to fuel that need over the next six to 12 months with business interest, with people not having money. I think there'll be, and you touched on it earlier, I think there'll be a greater demand for tourism in Australia now because people simply won't be able to go overseas. And financially, um, they won't be able to afford to go overseas, so they'll start looking, whether it be a road trip on the weekend, you know, ravaged bushfire um, towns to getting on a plane and flying to Queensland instead of flying to Bali. I think there'll be a lot more of that, obviously, once the borders open, which is good. I think that'll be a significant win for the Australian tourism industry and probably at a time we really need it, desperately need it. I think we'll see more of that than we will see um, international travel. Yeah, I, I agree with that. Um, and hopefully the governments can kind of work cooperatively together to get yeah. around. I, I, I hope so. Um, uh, it's going to be an interesting sort of three to six months, that's for sure. I think there'll be mistakes, there'll be learnings, there'll be um, – we, we expect sort of the W effect in this virus. So we've seen it in Singapore. We were gearing up to open and then the second wave hit and that's basically what we call the W effect, so it goes up and down. Um, and so then everyone went back into the shell again. Um, I'm kind of expecting that to happen in Australia. Hopefully it won't. Um, but if it is, then what does business then look like if it, we have another outbreak? And I think that's why the government are being very cautious about international, you know, opening the international borders because they don't want to let people back in again. And then we all back to zero, we start all over again. I think that's why everyone's being very, very hesitant at the moment. Yeah. For, for good reason. Singapore's been a great example of that. Yeah. You know, a country everybody thought had it under control and then the second wave hit. And a lot of that was the labour workers and the labour camps and that sort of thing as to why it happened, but it still happened. We don't have that problem clearly in Australia, but um, I think the geography in our instance actually helps us. Yeah. I think it would be um, catastrophic for us if we were to have a second wave i think particularly particularly with hospitality and leisure as a focus for businesses um you know who don't operate at a significant scale to yeah. re-mobilize and then have to re uh hibernate for lack of a better term um it'd, it'd just be horrendous yeah although they they keep talking about this hibernation but i'm wondering when it happens because as i said earlier I've been busier now than I was ever before, so I'm not quite Same. sure when this combination is about to start. But I hope it starts soon. But um, yeah. <laughs> I'm going to ask one really quick question and then we'll just get on to the sure. final two. Well, how weird is it being in an airport at the moment? You, you came back a couple of weeks ago from international, which I can imagine like many – I'm used to being in an airport once a week um, on average, I guess, uh, and obviously used to what an airport normally looks like. But what you described to me the other day coming yeah. through international was um, was pretty phenomenal. Oh, yeah. Yeah, no, uh, it probably won't work for this podcast, but I'll actually send you a link. I did a couple of videos. I got the teams to do a video for Singapore, uh, for Australia, and for Thailand. Um, and this was probably about a month ago. And then I did a video on my journey back to Australia recently before, and, and, and even during quarantine. It's eerie. Like in, in Thailand, for instance, all of the restaurants and all the retail offers on the airside once you go through security are completely stripped out. So you're talking uh, Cartier, Louis Vuitton, um, they are completely empty. Like the shelvings on the wall, that's it. Everything else has been gutted. Um, they've literally got a saran wrap on the front of the store. 
blocking it off and some chairs to block it off. Everything is gutted. It is quite surreal to have to experience it. Um, I've never seen anything like it. And I, I got the teams to take the video and we put it all together because in three years' time, I'll be saying to someone, oh, I remember the time where the airport was completely empty and everyone, no one will remember. Because, yeah. again, people are creatures of habit. They'll go back to old habits and everyone will be like, no, that didn't happen. Um, and we'll quickly forget. But um, it was just, it's the weirdest feeling I've ever seen. Uh, you know, I'm normally, and that's why I love my job, being in the excitement of the hustle and the bustle of being at an airport, seeing people's faces when they're going on holidays and the excitement, um, and it's completely empty. And with the exception of a couple of airport workers, um, it's, uh, I, I don't know how to describe it. Um, I've never seen anything like it. I, I was, I, Luke, and like I'll send you the video so you can have the link to have a look at it. But Yeah, nice. It's, you, I often look at it again now and think, wow, it's a completely different world. Mm. And it's the calm before the storm because it will get back. And I think that's probably one of the key points I want to make. It will get back. Um, it's just a question of when and at what capacity, but it will definitely get back. Mm. Um, you know, in two or three years' time, hopefully, we'll be back to, you know, the, the good old days of, you know, people getting on a plane and going on a holiday and, and travelling for work. Um, we're just going to have to go through some pain mm. in this next probably 12 to 18 months to get there. But it, it, I'm, I'm very optimistic that we will get back. Yeah, nice. Uh, we'll definitely send through that video, and we'll um, we'll put it in the yeah. show notes right with the, with the uh, post when we put it out. Um, Mike, do you want to do the? Yeah, I, I think I think we should take a riff on the last two questions, though. So, rather than favorite <laughs> venue necessarily, what about favorite destination for someone in your line of work? Um, basically, you, you would. Um, you good question. I have to say the the probably a strange one, but I've. Um, I've travelled extensively around the world. I've been to 68 countries. I've worked in the Middle East. I've worked in places like Iraq and Afghanistan. I've been to some really surreal uh, destinations. Probably the best place I've been to, uh, probably more of a sombre note, is uh, Villa, Brit uh, Villa Brittanou, um, which is a small town in France. Um, and it's about an hour and a half north of Paris. Um, and I was there a couple of years ago where I literally just got a car and I drove to Normandy, a lot of the historical sites. And Villers Brittany in the First World War was a little town that the uh, Australian Defence Force basically saved in the Brits. Um, they, the Victorian government then helped to rebuild this town and the school. And there's a small uh, school there now that has got Never Forget Australia in the middle of the quadrangle to this day. And they sing the Australian National Anthem and then the French Anthem and there's street signs named after Victorian towns. Um, they're just very, very grateful. And it was just one of those towns that I'd heard about a long time ago. You could drive through it and blink and miss it. Um, and I spent the night in this town and just they're, they're still to this day grateful for Australia's support in helping the town. And the Australian government built this significant war memorial just outside of town. Um, but, yeah, it's, it's about 90 minutes north of Paris. If you're ever in, in France... Um, yeah, it's, it's one of the places I'd highly recommend. Um, really off the beaten track a little bit, but, yeah, it's um, it's quite different. So a lot of the places I suppose I've been to for work, I kind of take for granted. You know, the office is in Hong Kong, so I, before COVID would be there once or twice a month, um, Singapore once or twice a month. Um, so it kind of loses its allure from a destination point of view because for me it's work. Um, so I might go, you know, for dinner downtown, something like that, but it doesn't have the same stigma as, you know, if we were going there for, for holidays. So that probably ruins it to a degree. And so when I travel, I try to go to places 
um, uh, you know, even Sound Reap in Cambodia, places like that that you know, I love I loved going to because they're out of the way, um, really cheap to go to, good experiences um, to see. And I, I always try to not go back to the same place twice. I always try to find a new place to keep going to, unless, of course, it's for work. Um, so there's still a lot of places on my bucket list. Um, probably the one I'd absolutely love to do still is the Trans-Siberian Railway that I haven't done yet. That's probably next on my bucket list. I think yeah, that that, is, that would have to be one of the single best answers to a question of that nature towards the end of a show. <laughs> Something, um, there's something nostalgic in your first, um, you know, reply there, and I think it sort of speaks to that. You know, some of these principles of human connection, and you know how we're feeling, and where 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 one would, you know, transport oneself. You know, which is um, like I, th- I think how people respond partly to travel, amongst other things, when they when they do have that opportunity. Um, and yeah. uh, and the other part of it, and uh, it doesn't need need to stay on the continent, so to speak, but. Uh, the ISO drink of choice, um, you know, two weeks in a hotel room overlooking Darling Harbour. Uh, just just the waters, was it? Uh, <laughs> depends what flavour the water is. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> uh, and I actually, probably a uh, – I'm, I'm not a big wine drinker, but I sort of started to get into the whites, um, the you know, Sauvignon Blanc. But typically I, I'm, I'm into the Johnny Walker Blue but um, that was a little difficult to come by in isolation. I should have brought some back with me. I never thought of it. But, um, uh, but yeah, some really nice wines, a um, couple of craft. Yeah, I love the craft beers uh, sort of thing. So I tried not to uh, uh, get too much into it. But funnily enough, <laughs> here's a tip if you're in isolation for the listeners. Is, um, so I'd walked five kilometres a day in my hotel room while I was in isolation. And then every day I stepped it up 500 metres. So the last day I did nine and a half kilometres in the hotel room. Um, and for those that are curious on the math, it's around 390 laps from the front door to the back wall. Um, so, yeah, that was uh, – and that occupied a couple of day, hours a day. So, What kind of room were you in at the hotel? <laughs> wasn't very big. No, <laughs> typical, ho- typical hotel room. So it was from the front door to around the bed to the back wall. It was around 34 steps return. So, yeah, right. Yeah, it was um, – yeah, it, it, and I, I got photographic evidence, so it was people thought I was insane, but it actually killed two hours a day, and it felt like I was doing something. You, know, you weren't allowed out of your room at all, so mm. it was the only thing I could think of to keep myself occupied. Otherwise, I would have drunk for the two weeks. They probably but, had uh, to replace the car, but you've worn a, a lap in the, uh, <laughs> in the three yeah. count. But, they, uh, they probably came in to clean it and thought, "What's that mess? What's that mark on the on the carpet?" But, um, <laughs> yeah, it was. It kept it interesting. Well, mate, thank you for taking the time. I know you're extremely busy trying to work your way through all of this, but um, look forward to catching up with you in person next time uh, it's feasible. And, um, mate, really uh, best of luck with with all of the openings across all the different regions that you're working on. Thanks, Dan.